You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 19. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and make your way there, Psalm 19. And I want to orient our, our hearts and our minds toward the glory of God. So as you're turning there, just allow me just to pray one more time. Father, we, we come before you. And God, my prayer is, is, is like the prayer of Moses. God, would you show us your glory this morning? Would you make our hearts receptive to your word Would you allow us the privilege and the joy of gazing at your beauty and your glory? And God, I pray that as a result, we would not be the same people we were when we walked into this place this morning. Transform us by your power, by your glory, by your grace, we pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. This psalm, I think, has a particular relevance for our, our time in history. It's, it's relevant, for sure, for all of human history. It's a very famous psalm, and if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've likely read it numerous times. Maybe you've even memorized it. But I think this is a particularly relevant psalm for our particular cultural moment, I think we are living in one sense in unprecedented times where humanity has rejected God and replaced God with self. And while I understand that is essentially the story of all of of fallen humanity, I think we see that evidenced in some unique ways in our day and age. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, author Carl Truman, he says that our culture has become obsessed with what he calls expressive individualism. And by that, he he means that each of us seeks to give expression to our inner lives. This is the mantra of our society and of our culture. The call is for you to be true to yourself. That's what our culture wants you to believe. You need to express who you believe you are on the inside, and that is dictated by your own personal feelings and self-perception. Your goal, our culture says, is to express yourself, be the most authentic version of yourself, and that is entirely determined by yourself. Humanity has become skilled in the art of self-creation or self-expression, and we live in a time where our authenticity excuse me, to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truth has become the norm. You must determine who you are. You must be true to who you are. Man's chief pursuit apart from God is to become a god. To display our glory, not God's glory. But you see, God's chief pursuit for man is to make us more like him. 
He has made us to reflect or refract his glory like, like the moon in the sky that does not shine forth its own light but simply reflects the glory and the light of the sun. God has actually created us to reflect his own light and glory. Here in Psalm 19, David, the author of this psalm, King David, he wants to detach us from the glory of self, and instead he wants to tether us to the glory of God, to move us away from expressive individualism towards an identity that is embedded and grounded in the very glory of God who created us to see him, to know him, and to reflect him to the world around us. The dominant theme in this psalm, if you haven't got the picture already, is the glory of God that is revealed by God. Now, God's glory is simply the expression of who he is. It's the totality of his essence that is put on display and revealed for us. So to know God's glory essentially is to know God himself. To see God's glory is to see God in in all that he is, in all of his majesty. It is God's chief desire that we see this glory, know this glory, and reflect this glory. And so as a result, it must be our chief pursuit in life as well. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously begins by asking this question, what is the chief ends of man? What's the goal of man? And it answers the question like this, the chief end of man is to, know, to glorify God, excuse me, and to enjoy him forever. This is why we were created. And so here David wants to pull us into that glory, and he wants to show us how it is to shape and mold and transform every part of our lives. Let's look at verse 1 and read it together. David writes, begins in the subscription there, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings on the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we look at this, I want to break this down into three points for us. I want us to first look up in the sky. Then I want us to look down in the scriptures. Then I want us to look in to the self. First, my my chief pursuit in life must be to look up and declare his glory. This is what the psalmist calls us to. David, in the first six verses, calls us to recognize how God has put his glory on display in an overt and obvious way. Theologians call this uh, revelation of God the, the book of the world or general revelation. It is this idea that as you look around at nature, at creation, it actually speaks forth the existence of God. This world puts God on display. And he looks here at at the kind of macro picture, the big picture, not the micro picture of creation, but, but what everybody can see, what everybody has access to. It's so obvious, it's so overt that it ought to be undeniable to all who look up and see it. Uh, my, my family and I, we, we drove here from uh, the greater Toronto area. We left a couple of days ago, and we drove about 15, 16 hours. Uh, we came here to spend a week. We're going to see Jeff and Sally and their girls, and we're just really looking forward to spending some, some time with them. But it's interesting, you know, as we cross the, the, the border into the United States, there are some very obvious cultural differences that immediately kind of jump to the surface, And it may not be as apparent to you if you're American crossing into Canada, but for us as Canadians coming into America, it's some really clear uh, cultural differences. I mean, you guys are the land of the free and home of the billboard. (laughs) (laughs) We got billboards in Canada. We, We do. We got plenty of them. But it's nothing. Like in comparison to you guys, you guys do billboards right. Okay, it, it is, it's just, you, you cross the border and it's all of a sudden these massive billboards, like twice the size of Canadian billboards, American-sized billboards. And, and it's, just not, it's just not the size of them, it's the amount of them. It's like one after another after another, and it's just, you can't miss. I don't know how many billboards for McDonald's I need to see. Right? McDonald's, exit in two miles. McDonald's, exit in 1.9 miles. McDonald's, exit... If you miss the exit, it's nobody's fault but your own. <laughs> it's overt. It's overt. It's obvious. But here's, here's my point. You see, the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are like a giant billboard that God has placed in the sky that you are not supposed to miss. It displays and declares the glory of God. It shouts it forth over and over again. And that's exactly what he says in verse 2. This happens every day and every night. He draws our attention to the sun, the focal point of all existence. What every human being sees and feels, it it is reflecting and showing us the reality of the power and glory of God. Every time you feel the sun, that's what you're supposed to think. 
It's like a fountain that never stops and a river that's always flowing. Night after night, day after day, it is displaying and declaring the glory of God. Verse 3 actually gives us this paradox. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It's a fascinating statement. Remember, this is a poetry that David is writing, and it's really a song that was meant to be sung by the people of God. But there's a paradox here. There's an utterance without words that is actually undeniably heard or seen by all. Creation speaks, but inaudibly. The testimony of God is seen in the glory of his world. And it's a testimony. I love this. It it transcends time. It transcends ethnicity. It transcends geography. It, It can't be missed. It doesn't matter where you are on the globe or what point in time you live on this globe. All of creation is screaming forth constantly the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. The sun, that has been introduced, it begins to dominate now the the next few verses. And in verse 4 to 6, we're told that there's a tent almost, like this picture, this picture that God gives us, this tent, a structure for the circuit of the sun. Contrary to our uh, popular scientific age and the beliefs they espouse, the sun is not the result of some random accident, but it is positioned perfectly by the creator. But the two metaphors here are where I want to quickly focus our attention He describes the sun like a a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, in the ancient Near East, if it was your wedding day and you were the groom, you would expect your friends to come and meet you at your tent or your home in the morning. And and it was kind of like a rally cry. Your friends would come and you would come out of the tent and you would be beaming with this sort of joy and exuberance because this was the day you were going to marry your bride. And he says to us, the sun is like that, like this bridegroom that's bursting forth out of the chambers. It's just explosive in its, its power and its glory and the joy. It's more than that, though. It's like a strong man running his course with joy. It's the second metaphor he gives. It's like an athlete, and you can kind of envision a track and field athlete. The, uh, the World Track and Field Championships was, was just on, uh, I think last week or the week before. I can't quite remember now. Everything's a little fuzzy. But uh, I, I, I'll, I'll not forget watching the men's 100-meter final. By the way, uh, the Americans cleaned up, took all three podium positions. Congratulations. But it's crazy, you watch these these men line up on the the starting blocks, and and these men are like superhuman. They're they're monstrous men, their their muscles are just rippling, and their power, you can just see it, it's just bursting forth from their bodies. I mean, their muscles have, their ears have muscles. Never skip ear day. But the point is, after, you know, they burst out the blocks, this explosive power, and they run with such joy and such strength. And listen, every time the sun eclipses the horizon, it's like the power and joy of God is bursting forth on the scene. Nothing, he says, is hidden from its heat. Isn't that a great 
reminder, even if you can't see, even if you were born blind or, 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 or somehow you've lost your sight, listen, you cannot escape the very presence. Its heat is felt by all, especially over the last month. You know, nothing can survive without the sun. And the point is that this revelation of God in his world is, it's universal. It's this picture of the life-giving power of God. And, and it should be so clear, so obvious, so unmistakable that every person who's ever lived should be able to look up and declare the glory of God. God is, is real. God exists. He is powerful and mighty in splendor and in strength. So why don't they? Why do millions of people miss the billboard? Well, Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, actually tell us, the Apostle Paul, I think, giving a little bit of a commentary on on Psalm 19. Listen to what he says. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen to this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word there for suppress is a really important word, and let me give you a visual. It kind of conjures up this idea, this image of, of this giant coiled spring. And humanity in their sin and unrighteousness is leaning on that spring with all of their power and might. They're trying to hold down that spring. They're trying to pretend like that spring doesn't exist. And all the while, the pressure of the spring is pushing up into them, but they're suppressing it and pushing it further and further down, denying what is so obvious. Paul goes on to say it like this, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then he follows it up with this devastating line. Listen, so they are without excuse. He goes on to talk about the result of this kind of suppression of God, it leads to a moral disintegration. And, and we know this. He actually goes on to show in Romans 1 how, how this rejection of, of the reality of God actually leads to the, the collapse and the destruction of both cultures and countries. But I want you to see this, that, that the revelation of God in creation is sufficient to condemn all the world to hell. It's a staggering thought. It is sufficient to condemn all the world to hell. That's what Paul says. In other words, listen, every one of us is going to one day die. And every one of us will stand before King Jesus, the judge of the universe, and there's not one person who will be able to stand before God throughout all of human history who, who will be able to stand. And when God says, why, why didn't you acknowledge me? Why didn't you turn to me? Why didn't you worship me? Nobody is going to be able to look at God and say, God, I didn't know you were real. I, I didn't know you existed. Because the moment you try to utter that from your lips, God will say, you had every opportunity to look up and declare the glory of God. You see, so what is the right response to seeing the glory of God in creation? 
Well, it's actually very simple. It is twofold. It is to give thanks to God as God, and it is to worship God, to honor God as God. That's what Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 1. Do you realize the fundamental sin of humanity is a failure to thank God and to worship Him as God? That's it. You can boil all your sin down to the most fundamental level, and what you'll find out is there is no gratitude to God for His kindness, His grace, And there is no worship of God. Instead, humanity exchanges the glory of God for the glory of mortal things. Creatures that were made by God. While creation is sufficient to reveal God to the world, it is actually insufficient to redeem people from the world. Nobody, in other words, can look at creation and actually find salvation. They can see the existence of God and the reality of God and know some things about this God, but they cannot know this God intimately and personally. They cannot be yet redeemed by this God. We're all blind without divine intervention. And so secondly, we must make it our chief pursuit to look down and delight in his glory. We need to look down, in other words, to the scriptures and see what theologians call a special or specific revelation. It is the book of the word that reveals to us in greater detail and depth the glory of this God who created all things. And not only that, how we can know him, be restored to him, and live our lives for him. I want you to see that David begins to list six things, really, statements about the Scriptures. But but there's a, a phrase that I want you to pay special attention to. You find it six times, and it's this phrase here. If you underline or mark your Bibles, you might want to mark this, of the Lord. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. You say, well, why, why do we need to pay special attention to that? Because, because here's why. Because Scripture comes from God. It is, as Paul says, God breathed. God actually has spoken to us. This is the awesome truth about Christianity. God has not left us in the dark without a way to come to him. God has spoken. He's written a book. He is the source and the author of this book that we have open in front of us. This book is not a human book, but a divine book. And as such, here's what it means for you and me. It must be authoritative over our lives, and we must see it as sufficient to provide all that we need for life and godliness. This is the Scripture's testimony of itself. So while we see, listen, that the revelation of God's glory in the world is enough to condemn, what we find here is that the revelation of God's glory in the word is sufficient to save. He gives, again, six statements about the scriptures, and he he highlights first six titles for scripture. Here's what they are. Uh, Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and judgment. And then he gives us six characteristics of the Word of God. It is perfect, sure, right, 
pure, clean, and true. And then he actually walks us through six results of the word of God. Now, listen, we could take all day to go into the depths of each of these words and determine what each one means and how it's applicable to our lives, but time does not permit us to do that this morning. It would, it would take us all afternoon, and I've been told I only have an hour and a half to preach today. Is that right? I'm just kidding. I was expecting at least one amen. Like, Yes, yes, thank you. You're a good man. But instead of dissecting these individually, here's, here's how I think we ought to see this. And, and we're going to talk about them individually very quickly. But I think there's a bigger picture here that we need to have in our minds. I think that these statements about the scriptures are intended to be read and understood against the backdrop of the world that we live in, Okay. So, so in other words, here's what I want you to think about. When you think about, what do you think about right now when you think about our world? What comes into your mind when you think about the state and nature of, of our culture and our world? I think in many ways, the things that pop into our minds are, are man, this, this world has a ton of problems. This world is broken. I mean, this world, there's so much sin and wickedness and evil. It, so, so when we look at the world, what it often looks like is this dark, ominous storm cloud, doesn't it? And, and part of what we feel in, in our bones as Christians is like, how am I going to live in the light of all this darkness? I mean, how am I, I going to find hope and joy and peace in the midst of this chaos and destruction? But you see, this is where David, I think, comes in in the middle of the psalm, and he says this, listen, against the backdrop of this world that is so often um, impure, unclean, unrighteousness, there's so much injustice and brokenness and wickedness, and the filth and stain of sin is so obvious and painful and glaring. He says, listen, the word of God reminds us that there is a light that springs forth in the midst of the darkness. That yes, everything in this world feels unstable and unsettling and, settling and unsure. But the word of God, listen, the word of God is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean and it is true. We realize that the word of God shines into the darkness of this world into which we, in which we live. He calls the word of God the law of the Lord. I think that's a really important word just to understand. You see, the law here, it may not be what you think. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not specifically talking about, you know, the Levitical law. You know, when you, when you, you go through the book of Leviticus, you start reading through those laws and your daily devotions die for the rest of the year. The word he uses here for law is the word Torah. It's a holistic word. It's an all-encompassing word. And so what he's trying to say to you and to I is that the word of God, that the comprehensive reality of the word of God is what we're to look at. And this comprehensive word of God from cover to cover, it is perfect. It is complete. It is lacking in nothing. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. It is completely sufficient. But I want you to notice what for. Look at the verse with me. Reviving the soul. 
And this is such good news because, listen, we live in, in a dark world, and so often we feel like the darkness is overcoming us. We feel the pressures, the, the relentless pressures of the darkness of this world, of sin outside of us, of sin inside of us, and sometimes it's just crushing. We're like, man, we feel so depressed. We feel so, everything's so weighty, and we, we just feel like the life is being just drained from us sometimes. And here, here David comes along and he says, but the word, of the word of God, it revives the soul. It breathes life back in where there is death. And some of us maybe grew up reading the King James Version, or maybe you still do, and you just, you love the poetic nature of the King James Version. And I actually think it's got a very helpful a translation of this verse. You want to know what it says? Instead of reviving the soul, here's the word it uses. Converting the soul. That's such a great word because it tells us that the word of God has the power to do an absolute, complete renovation of our souls from the inside out. The intent of the word of God is not to make us good people, it's to make us new people. To to radically transform every part of us, our desires, our affections, our actions, our words, everything totally transformed by the word of God. The scripture is designed to target all of its power at the inner person. And in this way, it functions kind of like the sun in the previous section that we looked at. Where the sun gives life to all of creation, so too the word of God gives life to all who turn to it. The word is the source of life spiritually. It points us to the means of our salvation It is the means of the sanctification of the believer. The goal in studying the Bible, and maybe just let me help you, in the goal in listening to his sermon, the supreme goal isn't to simply achieve some kind of increased Bible knowledge, right? It's not to win some kind of Bible trivia competition. It's not even to walk out of here with a couple practical things that you can add to your life that maybe, you know, help you along the road in this life, although those are good things. The goal in studying the Bible, in listening to the preaching of God's word, is to have a genuine, authentic encounter with the God who created the universe. And the goal in that is so that you can be radically transformed, so that you can be an entirely different person, a person who knows the glory of God and who lives for the glory of God. He gives us some more titles here that just help us think about what the Word of God is. He says they are the testimonies of the Lord. In other words, it's God's divine witness. He's giving his own testimony of who he is, of what he's doing, and the result of that is that it is sure. In other words, it's reliable in every sense, and it's therefore able to be trusted and followed. He calls the Word of God precepts and commandments. They're doctrines. They're absolute truths. These are not simple suggestions for life. These are absolute statues for living life the way God has designed it to be lived. He says it is right. In other words, it lays out a right path. It is a light unto our path. It is a lamp unto our feet. It's how you navigate life in this dark and dangerous world with all of its ugliness and confusion. 
And then he says the word of God is, is the fear of the Lord. This, this kind of seems like it doesn't really fit. But, but it actually does. You see, the fear of the Lord is speaking to a reverence of God. And what it's telling us is this, that the word of God is actually revealing to us the God who is to be worshipped. And it's revealing to us the way in which this God is to be worshipped. It's a manual for worship for the believer. It teaches us how to live every part of our lives as an act of worship unto him, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so we come to the word of God. We see what it is and we read it and we delight in it. And and as a result of that, we pray it like like we did this, this morning and we speak it to one another and into one another's lives and we sing it back to God, the God and King of glory. And then we live it faithfully. He calls the word of God the rules of God. These are the decisions that have previously been rendered by God and have been determined to be true and righteous. And then he gives us these these verbs now, okay? The the effects of the law of God are the impact of the law of God. So we saw that it is supposed to revive the soul, but look what it does next. It makes simple people wise. Now, I, I think this is an incredibly important a point for us as believers because of what this actually means. Now, simple, don't, don't think just people who are ignorant and lack understanding. Um, the biblical word for simple is in the Hebrew. It actually implies somebody who is open-minded, okay? Now, so what I want you to envision is, is somebody, you know, your mind is like a, a house, and you've kind of left the front door wide open, okay? That's the imagery here. So the simple person is the person who is open-minded. Now, the problem with this is, is that this is often seen as a virtue in our culture, isn't it? People pride themselves in being open-minded. They don't want to be too narrow in their thinking. They're, they're wide open to all kinds of different opinions and views and perspectives. And this is what the Bible actually condemns, not commends. So, so David's saying our problem is that we're so often like a house with the door wide open. Anybody can come in or out. We're not discerning. We don't care. And so what we're doing oftentimes as Christians, listen, here's, here's the statement that my mom used with me when I was a kid. Uh, maybe you hear this too, kids, or maybe parents who use this. Uh, garbage in, garbage right. It's true. This is biblical. And my fear for us as Christians is that we, we so easily let so much in the front door. We're just, the door's wide open. It's the ideology, the humanistic, materialistic, hedonistic ideologies of this world that are anti-God, anti the glory of God, pro the glory of man, pro expressive individualism. We just have the door wide open. It's coming in through, you know, you pick your streaming service, Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, whatever else you may have. All the ideas are being pumped at you. Social media, media, the workplace. It's just, it just comes flowing in. And so many of us have the door wide open to it. We don't even realize how much it's impacting the way we're actually thinking. Um, I, I got an Apple iPhone, and, uh, and there's a part of it that I absolutely hate. You know the screen time thing that pops up? Tells you how much time you spent on the phone and what you've been doing with your time. You get that? Some of you have disabled that. Good for you. You don't like conviction. I, you know, but that's, it's actually helpful, isn't it, sometimes to look and see how much time we're spending. 
doing certain things. But I wonder, Christian, listen, I wonder if there was like an app that popped up on our chest, a spiritual app, like a God time app that popped up in front of our face every day and showed us how much time we were spending with God. You know, like in the word, in prayer, with the people of God, meditating and thinking about the things of God memorizing the scriptures as we're called to. I, 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 wonder, I wonder what those times would look like compared to the amount of time we spend inundating ourselves with the thinking and ideas of the world. It's no, no wonder living for the glory of God is so hard for the Christian. And, and, and loved one, listen, the, the good news here is this can actually be reversed. We can become people who are obsessed with the word of God and the God of the word. And this is what we're being called into by David. Shut the door of our minds to the things of the world. To turn our brain off to things that are destructive and damaging. And become wise to the ways of God and the things of God. To become skilled in practical living. People who live for the glory of God. And you know what the result of that is? Well, he tells us right here. That the word of God is rejoicing the heart. This is, this is not something that is... Uh, Killing our joy in the Christian life. It is actually producing joy in the Christian life. But true joy, lasting joy. I don't know what you're seeking joy and satisfaction in in this life. But true joy does not come from following your heart or being true to yourself. It just doesn't comes from the word of God, known and obeyed. This is exactly what Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight. He says, blessed are those, or happy, or joyful are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It doesn't just though rejoice the heart, it actually brings enlightenment to the eyes, he says. By nature, our eyes are darkened by sin. We are actually made aware, though, of what is true about ourselves, about God, about life and death and heaven and hell, about sin and righteousness. All of that is ours in the Word of God. Not only is it enlightened the eyes, it's enduring forever. Man, it needs nothing added to it, nothing to be changed. There's nothing outdated or antiquated in the word of God. Listen, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And, and beyond that, it is righteous altogether, he says. It is true John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus, Jesus prayed for us saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This book produces comprehensive righteousness. Loved ones, this is all you need for life and godliness. God has not withheld anything from you. So can we together agree, man, what a gift this book is to us, Amen. So what are you looking for? Joy? Satisfaction? Purpose? Meaning? Blessing? Rest? Whatever it is, listen, this book has everything you need because it offers to you God himself in all of his glory. Look down and delight. 
Make this the the habit and passion of your life. Do it daily. Do it diligently. Do it dependently in prayer. Seek to behold the glory of God in the scriptures. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed by the God of glory. Finally, make it the chief pursuit of your life to look in and desire his glory. He transitions to this a personal longing and desire for the word of God. And look what he says in verse 10. It's more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. It is true, it is everything we need, and therefore it is the most desirable thing for us. And I love this because exposure to God's glory in his word has actually changed David's desires. I mean, the more he's in the word of God, the more he wants the word of God, the the more he gets a glimpse of the glory of God, the more the glory of God he wants for himself. And he actually tells us it's, you know, it's more desirable than, than other things. What does he say? He says it's more desirable than honey and money. That's my attempt at poetry. It's more desirable than honey and money. But honey, listen, in the ancient world, it represents the provision of what is most satisfying and enjoyable and energizing. Money represents what is most valuable, what provides the greatest degree of security and stability in life. And so see, see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, listen, the, the thing that is best for you, the thing that will be the most satisfying for your soul, the thing that will produce the most security and stability in your life, it's not found in anything else but the word of God. It's all right here. Nothing else can do what it can do. It is our greatest treasure and our greatest pleasure. It is our greatest protector and our greatest provider. The highest joy in life is to know God, and that comes only, listen, through his word. Whenever we look down, we must also look in. This is what I want you to see. The intention of God is that we look up and see that he is real. That we look down And see that we can know him. And look in so that we can desire to be like him. This is what the word of God is trying to do in your heart. This is what he's doing in David's heart. The problem is that the word of God is also our greatest purifier. This is what makes the word of God sometimes painful for the believer. We look at the word of God and, and we come face to face with the glory of God and we feel like Isaiah, right? Who comes face to face in Isaiah 6 with the glory of God and what does he say? Woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen the glory of God and I, I can see that I am a, a wicked sinner. I mean, the stain of sin is all over me and how, how could I ever come into any kind of proximity with the God of glory who is perfect in beauty and holiness and perfection? And so he looks in and what does he see? Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What does he see? He sees sin. 
Errors, sin, deviation from God's word. That's what he sees. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Well, what are, what are hidden faults? Those are the sins that you, you don't even realize you've committed. I mean, we all know there are sins that we've committed, but every day we, we walk through this life committing sins that we don't even realize we're committing. Sins of the heart and the mind, maybe sins of the tongue that we're not thinking about. Maybe we're doing good things and we're doing them for wrong motives. And David's like, listen, I, I don't want any sin in my life. That's the point here. I, I don't want any of those hidden, I just want all my sin exposed and ripped out of me. And more than that, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Well, what are those? Oh, that's, just, that's, that's willful sins. We, we know what that's like, don't we? we? We've all had those moments where the, the temporary pleasure of sin is more desirable to us than the eternal lasting pleasures of God, right? Am I alone here? I mean, that's, this, is at the heart. this is why we sin. Because in the moment, sin looks more desirable. We feel like it's going to give us more of what we need. But sin always overpromises and underdelivers. And the willful, presumptuous sins, that's the sins where you're like, I don't care about the consequence. I don't care what it costs me. I just want my sin. I want my pleasure from sin, and I want it right now. But the problem with that is, look where it can often lead. Let them not have dominion over me. He's actually mapping out for us a bit of a pattern here that I want you to see. You see, he's saying this. You want to fight sin? I hope you're, you want to, this is about the glory of God and desiring the glory of God, and that means you must fight sin. But here's how this works. If, if you don't care about the little sins in your life, guess what? It's just a matter of time before you walk into the big sins. And if you start walking into the big sins in your life, not caring about the consequences of the sins, guess what? It's just a matter of time before those sins enslave you again. They have dominion over your life. And if you start walking in that enslavement, guess what happens? Look what he says next. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see, you walk in those presumptuous sins too long, and eventually you walk right off a cliff that you may not be able to recover from. You say, wait a, se- wait a second, didn't David write this? Are we talking about the same David? The same David, King David, who took a woman that wasn't his wife, committed adultery, gets her pregnant, kills her husband, and then covers the whole thing up for a year? That David? Yeah, that's the David who wrote this. And because that's the reality, listen, he, he is intimately acquainted with what he writes. He knows what it is to walk into great transgression. He knows what it is to live in presumptuous sin. But he's also able then to speak to us with clarity. There must be a willingness to do what you know is right at all times. And if I can encourage you, here's how you ought to read the Bible. You must read the Bible as a looking glass in which you can see both the person you are and the person by the grace of God you are meant to be. You must read the Bible, listen, you must come to the Bible and desire God's glory in every area of your life. 
And every part of your life has to come under the scrutiny of God's word. You, you must, as a Christian, this is your duty and this is your joy. You must look at the word of God and say, God, purge every area of sin. I want every part of my life to align itself with the standard of your word. And as you look at God's word, one of the things you'll realize, if that's your desire, is, oh God, that is not fully true of me. I, I have so much sin And you see his desire here? His desire, then I shall be blameless, he says, and innocent of great transgressions. The question is, how, how is this possible? We're all sinners, right? Who fall so far short of the glory of God. How is it possible to be declared innocent and blameless? But you see, this is why David is so important and so helpful here. Because David is pointing us beyond himself. He realizes that he cannot be perfect and innocent and blameless on his own. It's too much wickedness, too much sin. Look what he says in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And catch this, my rock and my redeemer. You see what David says? I need somebody else. I need God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Only God could cleanse me of all of my sin and filth and rebellion. And so you know what God does? David points us to the greater David, the greater king who is to come, to Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who steps from heaven, the glory of heaven to this earth, and he fully, faithfully obeys the law, every jot and tittle. At every point, he obeys the law of God, and he does so from the heart. His desire is ever and always for the glory of God the Father. He obeys it perfectly, and so he becomes the perfect substitute for humanity. He walks to the cross, doing what we could never do for ourselves, and he hangs on a piece of wood where he is punished for our sin, your sin and mine. He bleeds on that cross. He suffers the very wrath of God that we deserve for our rebellion. And he cries out at the end with his final breath, it is finished. And three days later, he is risen from the grave, declaring that he and he alone has been victorious over sin, death, and Satan, and all those who place their faith and trust in what he accomplished on the cross can be forgiven of their sins, cleansed from all their unrighteousness, and declared innocent and blameless before God Almighty. Hallelujah. This, this is the glory of God in the gospel. And every time we look at the cross, we're reminded that we are made right with God because of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who has become, to all who believe, our rock and our Redeemer. His glory to be manifested in us. So church, forget self-creation. What God provides for you and for me is new creation. Forget expressive individualism and being true to yourself. You are made to find your identity in Christ and to be true and faithful to him. And forget about your glory. Make it the chief pursuit of your life to know, enjoy, and display God's glory. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
to another.